What's it really like to be editor of a music magazine? It seems like the dream job. And I spoke to someone who's behind one of the biggest genre-specific magazines in the world. He is a proper expert, someone who's been making magazines for several decades now. He started out a bit like me, making a fanzine. He now makes a magazine that's had people like Kate Bush on the cover. This is my conversation with the lovely Jerry Ewing. He is the editor of Prog Magazine. First question I'm asking everyone is, what is music journalism? Um, well, it's journalism, uh, but it's, it's specifically about music. I mean, idea probably very old school to, you know, it's reporting the facts um, to inform, uh, educate and entertain. BBC have gone into your brain. Um. Uh, well, you know, I, I, but I genuinely, I genuinely yeah. believe that that's that's you know what it is in terms of music writing. You know, I'm not talking about other forms of media. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, the- print, print magazines specifically. There are there are other reasons for doing other things, but when it comes down to what what I my core job is, that's mm. that's how I view it. And putting one bigger babushka doll around that, what is journalism? It, it's it's reporting on what you see around you. It's writing about what what you see around you, whether you know whether it's art, it's uh, new, you know, it's what is actually happening um, on the streets. Um, it is um, fighting injustice, you know. I, I think as well, um, you know. But it, it's it's also trying to do it. Um, without taking uh, a polarising stand. That's a great answer. I've loved all these answers. It's been my favourite bit of the podcast, getting everyone's different definitions, because they're all, there's lots of similar themes. Um, so I, I mean, I'm, I I'm sure, up. I'm sure, sorry to butt in, I'm yeah. sure those change with age as well. I mean, mm. you know, depending on the age of the person that you're talking to, they might have a sort of a slightly different viewpoint. I'd be interested to know if the if the, the older people that you speak to, of which I'm sure I'm one of them, um, you know, uh, sort of have a similar view and that changes the younger people get. I'm not sure if the oldest, definitely the beardiest. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, you're quite enigmatic, so it wasn't easy to do too much research before this, but I, I discovered a few things about you. The first one being, I think, possibly around the same age, we both started fanzines. Yes. And you started a fanzine called Court Jester. I did. So, Jerry, so Jerry, could you very briefly introduce yourself and then talk about how your journey started and how you ended up finding yourself editing Prog Magazine for the last decade? Sure. Uh, I'm Jerry Ewing. I'm the editor of uh, Prog Magazine. Um, and it all started for me with, with Marillion. <laughs> um, I... I went to see Marillion at the Marquee. If you predate that, I, I went actually to see um, a band called Asia, who were uh, sort of uh, back in the early 80s, called a super group of, of people that had been in a lot of big prog bands. They were sort of slightly more commercially driven um, mm. by that point, uh, very popular. Um, Actually, if I predate that, I came over to the UK. I grew up in Australia, in in Sydney. So yeah. uh, my musical upbringing is very much geared around ACDC um, and bands like Skyhooks and Sherbet and Cold Chisel and Rose Tattoo and largely anything with a guitar. Australians were then very much and still to a certain extent are suspicious of something if it doesn't have a guitar in it. It doesn't have to mm. be incredibly loud, but they... Uh, um, so and then I, I, my family came over to to the UK and and it was around the time of the new wave of British heavy metal was was kicking off. So that obviously aligned itself musically with what what I'd grown up with and I I, I got into that and and it must have been amazing to be a teenager when heavy metal was kicking off. It was it it was it was. Um, it, it, Probably well, not as it, exciting as when new metal kicked off when I was a teenager. Yeah, I mean, no, it's it, for gen, in a generational thing. It's probably mm. exactly the same. Mm. You know, the the thrill and the buzz. I mean, we we moved to uh, Chorley Wood in Hertfordshire, and um, I used to get the train to go to school, 
um, from Rickmansworth Station. You walk down, and it was uh, there was a dual carriageway opposite the, st- the station. So you went on an underpass, and that underpass was known in the early eighties as Headbangers Alley because it was covered with all the band logos. Mm. Literally, someone or fans had gone in there with marker pens, and it literally the whole this underpass that took you from one side of the dual carriageway to where the station was, was covered in it. So it's called, it's known as Headbangers Alley. I don't um, think I've ever seen anywhere with loads of band logos on. I've seen so much graffiti over the years, but never somewhere. That's, that's so specific. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose it was, you know, you're talking about, um, I mean, it was a reasonably affluent part of Hertfordshire, so that's possibly a something to do with it. I, I think it's beyond the um, time where you could be done for doing it, but how many of those did you put on there? <laughs> I, honestly, I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure I, yeah. I'm sure I did a few. <laughs> um, but then Watersmeet Civic Centre in Rickmansworth played host to several gigs um, for a short period of time before I believe the, 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 count, the, the, count, the local elders put a stop to that. Mm. Um, they had a civic centre called Watersmeet, well, they still do. And um, I remember seeing Def Leppard and Girl and Girl's School and Angel Witch and Sledgehammer. I mean, all, you know, this was core new wave of British heavy metal. And they were all playing in my local civic centre, which was opposite the library. Um, but a uh, girl played sec- the second, Def Leppard would first, I think. When girl played, somebody sprayed the band's logo on the wall of the library, <laughs> which didn't go down very well. And the, the guy that promoted those gigs, um, he did Rickmansworth, he did uh, St Albans, Hemel Hempstead, Friars in Aylesbury, and Dunstable. Mm. Um, and there was a little circuit of, of sort of just out of London gigs. Uh, but Waters oh, it's amazing. It's amazing to think that none of those places have live music scenes anymore. Yeah. Maybe St. Albans and, and a it, tiny it, bit. It, it, I mean, it was massive. It was it mm. was massive. You know, I mean, okay, so we only had, what, three TV channels at the time. Yeah. Which is a, bit of a culture shock for me coming from Australia. But, but, uh, but even still, that idea of being, like, people talk a lot about kids not having anywhere to go. Like, you would have gone to a gig just for somewhere to have been out of the house yeah. a lot yeah. of the time. And, like, to think that you were watching acts... Who, I, I know there was a lot less music around, but they were probably a bit more, you're probably a bit more of a au fait with who they were than yeah. the, if you went to the average gig now. Yeah. So how how did Marillion start your journey? So I'd been going to gigs and then um, one of my mates at school said, oh, you know, do you want to go and see Asia? We can get some tickets. So I said, yeah, I'll up for that. So uh, he lived in Ryslip. So I went around his house. Um, it was it was a school night. And I remember going to his house because his brother was going to give us a lift to to Wembley Arena, which was where the gig was. And we got there and his brother had bought Marillion's first 12-inch single, Market Square Heroes, and three boats down the ca- from the candy on one side. And on the second side, Grendel, which was like this 17-minute epic. Um, and we listened to the first side. That, that, that didn't fit on a 7-inch, right? No, it was 12-inch, 12-inch single. <laughs> no, 12. And I think they had to play at 33 RPM as well. I think yeah. 45 one side. Anyway, um, we listened to the first side. It was all punchy and up-tempo stuff. You know, it was mm. it rocked as well as having flowing keyboards and stuff. Flipped it over, and I had no idea bands could write songs that long. I'd never heard it, and, and I was just blown away. I mean, I literally was just like, wow, this is just... So he just triggered something in me. Um, the story, I got into that, and, and, you know, I mean, I still love, and I still love heavy metal and ACDC and... And that, but it just triggered something. So, of course, I'm like, right, I've got to see them. And it was just at the point, that was October 82. So, it was just at the point where they were coming up to do this run of legendary Christmas shows at the Marquee in December 1982. And I went to two of the three. So, you had uh, Marillion on the three nights. I think you had Solstice supporting the first night, Pendragon the second night, and the Dagger Band, I think, the third night. I went to the first two. I was, yeah, you know, I'd never been to a gig mm. in a, like a marquee. It was hot, sweaty. It was, you know, it, it, that in itself was something. When they did Grendel fish pulls a kid out of the crowd, <laughs> axe it all out, you know, it mm. was, I was just like, I've never seen anything like this in my life, you know. Mm. Um, and I got a copy of the, um, of their newsletter, which was called The Web. And um, I was reading it on the, Metropolitan line home after the gig, and um, 
and I just was thinking, well, I could do something like this. It was a couple of sheets of A4 stapled together. Um, and I got home and, and sort of, I was, you'd see fanzines advertised in the mm. classified pages of Sounds. Sounds was always my music paper of choice. I used to get it at uh, Red Ant Records in Sydney three months late. But it was like it opened up to, you know, I was already reading this and thinking, God, all these stories are amazing. How do I get to do this? You know, I don't think I've ever read a copy of Sounds, actually. I was too young for it. Um, I should grab a, I should grab an archive one because everyone always talks about how great the writing was and the it's fantastic. What they covered and it was it was fantastic. Um, you know, it, I must have read pieces from it in like writing collections and stuff. I'm sure, but, I'm sure, I'm sure you have. But you know, yeah. the, the stories of them going on the road with bands, just the, mm. it was just you know, it really captured my mind because I was yeah. like, well, that's what I want to do. Um, and anyway, I knew about fanzines, and I thought I'd seen the web, I'd seen Amarillion did it, and I thought, well, I could do this. It's very DIY, very much that punk ethic of I could do that. Um, and I did. I borrowed my mum's Olivetti typewriter. Um, I traced the figure off the front of an album called Waltz of the Fall by a band called Lamatt, who were from Essex. Because um, it was a jester, they had a jester type character, so yeah. I kind of traced that and then embellished it. I mean, I'm rubbish at art, um, and used the old um, old English letter set that you buy from Smiths. Yeah, and uh, I, I I reviewed the Asia gig and I wrote about Marillion and I think a couple of it was about five pages, I think. And my dad worked for Taylor Woodrow, I think, at the time. Um, mm. And they had offices that overlooked Wembley Stadium. Uh, I remember he, he, he went, oh, I'll, I'll run a few off at work for you. And, and we advertised it in the back of Sounds. Mm. And it sold out in about two days. And he had to wow. go back and print more and more and more. <laughs> and, and then, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, wow, there is a market so, for this. Um, so that was Court Jester fanzine. How old were you then? When do you remember? 16, 17. Yeah, so really similar to, I'd seen some people starting newsletters because um, I was quite an online kid from like 14, 15 um, and I'd seen fanzines at gigs but I didn't understand why I needed to put my fanzine you know, on paper and like, which which obviously I, I could have done. But I, so, so I, I kind of messaged around lots of people asking to get sent demos and things and I think this is where we have like a um, sliding doors, different um, parts of our lives. Because the first demo I reviewed was Muse's demo. Wow! Um, and I completely lucked out that I'd met this lad on Instant Messenger on AOL, and he'd sent me his demo. Um, and I, and I thought it was really really good. Um, so I'd wrote my, I've sent out my newsletter, and then I like sent it to like Steve Lamac on Radio One, and I sent it to magazine all the magazines I wanted work experience at that next summer, and. Um, I was very annoying. I was probably the only person sending emails though, so it was, I got I did get some responses from people, and um, and I did that for a while. And um, my friend Sean um, that I'd met on the Reef message board helped me co-run it. Um, but I I think at that time that this was kind of a few years before Drowning Sound started, as being so central to learning so many different things. Yeah. Like I, I learned that people really don't like it if you misspell someone's name for Oh yeah. 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 They still um, they still don't. No. Um and I learned like I would read a magazine, I'd I'd been a melody maker reader since like the age of twelve or something. Um and but it it, it was so empowering to create something and to be able to hit send and it go out to like a few hundred people. Um in a eventually a few thousand people and then lots of people asked sign asking to write and sending me records and yeah it was like with that it's 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 exactly the same it's just different medium but it's exactly mm. the same as how court jester progressed i mean i we did seven issues before i was at university and and going out and getting drunk and having a laugh was mm. a bit more important than writing about prog rock um yeah <laughs> You know, and it, it, it kind of curtailed at that, at that point. But in that interim period, I met people. Uh, people started working for the with me on on the magazine, the fanzine. I met all the bands. Mm. So you know, the irony is that all of the bands that in that burgeoning sort of eighties prog revival thing that happened, pretty much all of them are still going. Wow! And guys that I would speak to on an old 
phone that you did that mm. with. Um, Holding one of those tiny microphones to the mouth to the earpiece. Yeah, the, oh well, yeah. Sunday afternoon, yeah. I'd just be chatting away with like Nick from Pendragon or Brian from Twelve Night. You know, they were just sort of filling me. No, he didn't record it. I mean, I wasn't mm. even in that far. Yeah, you know, ad- advanced at that point. Um, and now, you know, obviously, sort of forty years or thirty-five, forty years down the line, and we're all still mates, and I'm still yeah. writing, or you know, people are still still right writing about them. Um, funnily enough, as long, I'm, as long as they keep making good records, though. I'm, I'm at, yeah, <laughs> I'm actually off on Monday. I'm going off to Marillion's recording studio out in mm. Aylesbury to to interview them for them. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, but yeah, so I mean, that was that was that. And then I was at uni, um, and all I wanted to do was, you know, if, if ever the, you got careers chats, it was like, well, I, I want to be a music journalist, and they just look at you blankly and go, uh, "Have you thought about I going?" Have, so, have, have you thought conversations? <laughs> have you thought about going to printing college? <laughs> um, which at that point was about the only way you, you could get in, um, and. I had a job as an editorial assistant at Centaur Communications working for Marketing Week because I'd done marketing as my degree mm. um, and management side side of it, not the economic side. So I'd, And I hated it. I mean, it was just like I'd know it. I had nothing in common with these people. I didn't really like marketing. <laughs> Um, which, which is really interesting actually if you think about the fact that some of the things that are really great about great concept albums and great kind of immersive music projects is actually they're really good at they play, they use marketing as like an additional instrument well know? i mean I, I, that's I, being very I, cynical i, I, I hated it. it i hated it at that point mm. i mean it it's it served me well in the ensuing mm. 35 40 years mm. uh anyway um it's, it's, this is just, I mean, this is the most bizarre coincidence of how I ended up professionally writing. I was at, um, at uni with a guy called Dave Shack, who now is Iron Maiden's manager, along with Rod Smallwood. Um, or I think he's the MD of Phantom Music and Rod's the chairman now. But anyway, Shack and I were at university and we were mates because we liked the same sort of music and we'd go to gigs together and that. And um, I picked up a copy of Kerrang! in town and there was a the piece from dave in there so i wrote to him because that's what you did then there was no email <laughs> i wrote him a letter just saying mate i've seen your piece in kerrang i'm made up for you well done keep it going and was it, there a, was there a tiny bite of jealousy to see his name in print not really i just thought no. well done mate you know, cool great <laughs> you know yeah. um, he wrote back said mate thanks so much for your letter it's lovely to hear from you uh, I don't, I'm not working for Kerrang anymore. Um, I'm going to take this new job as deputy editor of this magazine called Metal Forces. Uh, and I'm moving to London. And initially, I'm going to be staying with some friends of the family in Rickmansworth. Mm. Um, and I don't know anyone. Can I hang out with you and your mates? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, of course you can. And he did. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, he was like, do you want to review this record? Mm. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. You know, and he was like, "Well, that's good. Do you want to read another one?" Because him and I have both written a column for the student paper as well. Yeah. So, um, so he knew you could write, and he knew you loved music. Yeah. And the next and thing that that's that's kind of the the two main things for the CV, isn't it? Basically, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I was very enthusiastic, and I'd seen that this was my chance, mm. and then I started interviewing bands, and I kind of made a point when they got offices near um, near Euston Road near Great Portland Street. I made a point of being in there a lot, and the next thing I was the staff writer mm. on the magazine. Um, you know, and eventually I was Dave's deputy, and then Dave right. went to work for BMG, RCA, uh, BMG, as they were then, and uh, we persuaded Malcolm Dome to come over from Raw magazine to edit Metal Forces. Mm. Uh, and then I left in about 91. I got offered uh, an associate editor's job on Metal Hammer when it was owned by the Germans. And I worked there for a bit until the Germans had ran it into the ground. And then as luck would have it, um, Dennis Publishing picked up Metal Hammer. And then they are, they only, they kept on two people from, and I've mm. still to this day, you know, I'm grateful. I don't really know why it was us two, but uh, my mate Wag, who's the art editor of, Mojo, 
probably art director now, but um, and and me, um, and suddenly you got to understand the machinations of a proper publishing company because everything yeah. I'd worked on till that point had been, you know, they were small independent publications, really sort of like glorified fanzines that actually got to sell in Smiths, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was a huge learning curve, um, and. Then I was on Hammer. Um, I got offered for a couple of years. I got I was deputy editor on Hammer. I got offered the chance to head up their one shots department, which I thought was well, going to be a good learning experience because I can still carry on writing for Metal Hammer. What's a one shot? Well, it was popular. Stick these poster magazines out. So oh, okay. It was more really learning about the production of magazines. You yeah. know, learning how to. Un- to do all that but while I was there I came up with the idea for classic rock and because the environment that we worked in was very you know it was my art editor a guy called Andy Ryan he was really into rock music mm. um, I think Dave Ling who worked on Raw and Metal Hammer had joined us be, um, in the office to, to sort of do production work and I'm like look lads I've got an idea mm. and they were like oh you know what, yeah. What were the what were the tea leaves you were reading that made it make sense? Um, that well, I'll, I'll tell you how we managed. We we first pitched it and and Dennis turned it down because they didn't really understand what we were doing. And we went back. They said, "Come back." The figures don't quite work, and we don't quite understand. We've got metal hammer. Why do we want this? So we we kind of went away. And I, I came up with this thing. I said, "Well, if you've got a triangle, you've got Q, Mojo, and Kerrang at each corner." And in the middle is all the bands they won't touch with a barge pole, and that's where you put classic rock. And they they understood that. Um, Do you remember which acts it was that you felt weren't getting the? Yeah, it was people like Guns N' Roses. Well, Guns N' Roses did get covered, but you know, I mean, Queen at that point, a lot of the melodic rock bands, all the you know, all the big American bands like Journey and Foreigner were. You know, these these bands had massive fan bases. Even Iron Maiden and, and Marillion and any you know, other prog bands. I mean, Mott the Hoople, they were in the first issue. I remember. And I remember the first issue, but we put the Manic Street Preachers in. And I remember Gillian uh, Porter, their PR, yeah. saying to me, what on earth do you want the Manic Street Preachers in there for? And I said, because one day they'll be a classic rock band. Yeah. Uh, that's how they'll be viewed. And we think every issue we should have one band who, Here if you're future. into that sort of music, this is a new band that you're going to kind of like. Mm. Um and I think we even in that first issue of Classic Rock, we had a thing called Meet the New Prog, same as the old Prog question bar, <laughs> which put the idea that the likes of Radiohead and Muse mm. and um, uh, Spiritualized and bands like that were actually taking that the musical sort of side, not the fantasy and goblins and, and sidelong epics, but they were taking a lot of the musicality yeah. from progressive music and they were – moving it in different directions well, they they could use george bush as their goblin so it was a bit easier <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, I, and i think you can they they were like dipping from protest music and like muse were massively into like primus and things like that weren't they yeah were kind of like from a different rock discipline um so at that time it was this is like late 90s 98 we rock. launched classic rock for dennis publishing in 98 and and what sort of numbers were magazines selling then <sighs> Whoa, i mean I mean, I know that I know that there's often it's a bit like the numbers they tell the marketing, the advertisers, yeah. and the numbers they I, were selling. I, I would say that uh, uh, Metal Hammer was probably doing in the region of forty to fifty thousand a month. Wow. Um, you know, um, and obviously that was dwarfed by Kerrang, yeah. which which you know was selling sort of ninety thousand, I think, at its absolute plus peak. plus everyone like in my class if you bought kerrang five or six other people read it as well, well you, so. yeah your readership is not yeah. not your sales figure yeah. you know so i, I always say it's work about 2.5 people yeah on top of per, per mag mm. as your readership figure yeah um i used to love that actually in tutor group i'd buy melody maker my friend would buy kerrang and on friday we'd swap yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um Classic rock, I think, when it started out, was probably selling, I think, probably did about 20,000, but it built that up to, you know, as Mel Hammer sort of went down a bit, classic rock was overtaking it. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and then um, I got offered a job on, at that point, 
the whole internet was starting to explode. Mm. Um, you know, little and, whippersnappers like me started to appear. <laughs> you know, and it was a whole new thing, and the old idea of digital publishing became a thing. And my mate, uh, uh, Dennis, had been asked to head up the interactive department, and he went, "I want you to do Maxim Magazine for me." Um, cause it's the height of the Ladsbanks yeah. thing, and I was like, you know, but I've got classic rock, I, you know. Yes. <laughs> and and he went, but, and I, I kept on thinking about it, and I was like, everywhere I looked, I was seeing these things called web URLs, you know, mm. web addresses suddenly were appearing on adverts on buses and on the tube, and and everywhere you looked, and I just thought, well, I've got to, I've got to do this, I've got to understand what's going on. Um, mm. So I I I stayed on as a that you know that <laughs> wonderful job title an associate editor um, yeah. on, on classic rock and went off and, and spent about six years um, you know looking at dodgy pictures and telling probably even dodgier jokes and you know mm. all sorts of stuff that you know you just literally wouldn't wouldn't even dream of doing today but it yeah. was it was a different sort of. I'm sure there's reasons why I drove a lot of traffic, and I'm sure not a lot. <laughs> um, and so, I, yeah, that, so I learned all that, and then I yeah. left. I did what everyone did at Dennis, basically. Mm. I, I got bored. I, I left and then contracted myself back to them, basically on just a bit more money than I was earning anyway, mm. for a couple of days a week, which worked for a couple of years until they kind of cottoned on. Um, but then I was, right, you know, it's been about 10 years since I've done classic rock. I just had an itch that needed scratching. And the more I thought about it, prog kept on coming back. Um, at that point, do you remember those uh, Britannia music series of programmes that they did, the BBC did? Yeah, the BBC ones, yeah. They, 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 you where, know, mu- where music seems to end in, like, 1985. Well, that, that yeah, that's a bugbear, I'll yeah. agree. But, you know, I think the last two they ever got around to doing was heavy metal. Mm. It's like, oh Christ, we got to, and then they did prog, yeah, uh, and you know, and yeah, the idea that after eighty two nothing happened, which was annoying yeah. because, uh, and oh, I know you get you get a little bit of Lily Allen in the outro, like that. That's all that's happened since, and maybe a bit of Oasis. Um, but yeah, so that basically was the the, the 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 signifier to me that if the BBC are actually acknowledging progressive music, I think Channel Four did a thing as well, and it wasn't just like you know, here's Rick Wakeman wearing a cape. Here's Emerson Lake and Parvis Trucks with their names on the top. Mm. Here's a three-week-long keyboard solo. Um, then I thought, well, if they're starting to take it seriously, if maybe that poison environment that existed with anyone that got into punk, those people obviously filled the pages of, of music magazines. So none of them were going to be very open to progressive rock. And I understand why. I thought if there's a wind of change, maybe now's the time to to look at doing something. At that point, had, few, had, there, had there ever been a prog magazine before that, like no, dedicated? No, at to that it? point, I mean, the best you got was that um, you know Sounds would write about mm. it back in the early eighties. The metal mags before they became a lot more, you know, full of subgenres yeah. were open to it by. By the nineties, nah, yeah, um, you know. So even classic rock. By that point, Dennis Publishing had sold Metal Hammer and and, Pro, and classic rock to Future Publishing, mm. um, and classic rock even wasn't that much interested. And I thought, well, if classic rock, which is you know, your obvious mm. home for. If they're not going to cover it, then that opens up the market again. You, sh- you should have read a letter to the editor and opened it. <laughs> um, so, so, so before up, we before I, we get too yeah. into what prog is, yeah, um, I'd be prog magazine, not the genre. Um, I'd be really curious just to get your sense of like what an editor does putting a magazine together, and maybe that helps you talk through how you started prog. Well, and- I mean that's that's a really good one because you know back in the day, it just used to be put a magazine together, but. Mm. Um, you know, I remember uh, a really brilliant talk by my boss, Scott Rowley, who used to edit Classic Rock, at one of our future conferences where he stood up and said, you're not, magazines, just a tiny bit of it, you're a multi-platform content organiser. Mm. Um, and that was sort of 10 years ago, and it's changed yeah. since then. Um, but at, at its core, you know, the editor is the person who 
guides the magazine, who decides what goes in it, sort of, you know, probably sort of helps point the tone of the magazine, um, you know. Um, with his team, you know, decides who's going to interview who, who's going to write what, mm. um, you know, organises getting all that copy in, you know, reads it all. It then goes through the production process of, you know, a second read, goes to the art editor who designs it. The art editor shows the editor. He either okays the design or says, I want this or I want that. Mm. And then it goes to so It gets cut to fit by a sub-editor and then it gets a final read and then it goes off to PDF. Now, when I first started, this was done... Um, <laughs> in the pub? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot yeah. a lot of that was done in the pub. But, yeah. again, that just shows you how drastically yeah. things have changed. Mm. Um, you know, but then you also could possibly have a team of 10, 15 people. I mean, I'm sure the enemy mm. had even more, you know. I mean, uh, you know, classic rock prog and metal hammer operate on teams of about four people. Yeah, you know, in in the office, you've got your yeah, wider teams. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, rem- I remember when Classic Rock had twelve people on their team. You know, yeah. Prog still had four. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but it, that's what you did. But then, of course, you've got you know, then comes along the internet. So you've got to have some kind of presence online, but not just a presence. You've got to know how to make it work. That's, of course, where my background in working with mm. Dennis Publishing's interactive department helped out. Then comes I like so- how you've I like like how your career is you've almost accidentally done the exact thing to lead to you to the place where you are now. Totally. Which was exactly the thing that a career advisor never could have advised you to take any of those steps. No. No. I mean yeah. I've been incredibly lucky. Yeah. You know, um and and um, I guess you know I've been good enough for what I do to maintain that for 35 years. Yeah. Um but because then, then along comes social media. That's a whole new ball game. Mm. That that in you know, you've got to understand how to use that and make that work for you, and that becomes part of your job as well. You know, and this is what Scott was referring to when he he said, you know, you're a multi-platform content editor. You know, you've got you don't just do a magazine. You've got all these other things that you've got to look at, and if you're lucky enough, you might have somebody that you you employ to handle that. And if you don't, then that's your job. Yeah. to do um you know i guess in a way that is that magazines becoming more progressive because they've got more tentacles well i mean yeah a bit more what like yeah. uh like yeah. like gentle giants octopus album cover <laughs> um sorry i had to throw a little prog analogy yeah in there. um yeah i mean well it, it, no, it's all about adapting these days it's you know mm. and and it's not just magazines i think life in general is about how you adapt to whatever gets yeah. thrown at you and 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 how you move on um, but you know the way, the, the way that, that, that you know magazines and working at magazines has changed in the last decade, you know, uh, is that it really rams that home. And I think it's changed more drastically in the last ten years than the, the the twenty years that preceded that. Changes were slower. Like I said, when I first started out, you know, it was spray mount and cutting, mm. cutting out, you know printing out the copy and then cutting it out with a scalpel and arranging it on a page. Yeah. And then one of my first work experience jobs was working at a free paper and I had to do the scissors and scissors and print stick. Yeah. Well, spray mount was, you know, the 3M spray mount. Fortunately, (laughs) I mean, that desktop publishing came in Mm. within months of me starting on a magazine. So I did. And then all of a sudden it was, you have to understand computers you know, yeah. um, I mean, I got away with we're using a word processor. I uh, don't know if people even know what those are these days, but, you know, the old Amstrad. It's Google Docs. <laughs> um, you know, th- uh, three, three and a half inch disc that you'd put in and you'd transfer your files mm. and there was no visuals. And, um you know, and, and and obviously, well, by the time I joined Dennis Publishing, you know, and it was like, here's an Apple Mac. I'm like, well, I don't know how to use that, but I'm not going to tell anyone. <laughs> I, yeah. I'll learn, and I'll learn go damn quick. Learn, yeah. Um, so one of the things I, I really pulled out what you said about what an editor does is setting the tone. So when you started Prog, or when you, I guess, 
you've got it pitched, you've got it ready to go. What was the tone you set? And and I guess in amongst that, how do you decide what is and isn't prog well, to it, fit okay, within the remit of the magazine? Interesting questions. I mean, you've got to understand your readers. Mm. You know, and if you don't, you're in trouble. Um, you've got to, you know. Um, but for the most part, you know, a lot of people that I've worked with throughout my career are all music fans. You know, they are diehards. And that's one of the, the, the things I actually genuinely love. I, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, certainly where we are at the moment, because classic rock, metal hammer and, and prog, are sort of their own little thing within future publishing. And, you know, I know every, I've worked with a lot of those people now for over 20 years and they're all great people and they're all massive music fans. You know, and that's what, that's what brings us together. Yeah. You know, and then we got lucky enough to do the jobs that we do within, within that. Um, but you've got to understand who your readers are and you've got to understand, and that's something that comes with time. I mean, you know, I thought I had an idea of what the prog readership might be, you know, and that's a learning curve. I think today, sort of 15 odd years down the line, I've got a much better handle on that. Mm. Um, and then you let that guide you, don't you? Um, you know, so we've all, just we've, on that question then, just the, um, because I often think about the 16-year-old version of myself sometimes and what they are would be like now. And then I also think of the person that's maybe 10 years older than me, the person who got lost their interest in music at 25. So I sort of have these different characters in my head. And they're often, yeah. they're not all versions of myself. They're versions of other people I've met, versions of people I've met in different countries. and um, But they've sort of got like a shared interest. Well, whereabouts in your head do you do you have these like imagined characters? And um, are they all goblins? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they're elven folk of varying degrees. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah uh, right. I mean, with prog, right, for our readers, it's the music that matters. And that's a great way of describing it to them. They're not interested in sex, drugs and rock and roll. That's classic rock's job. Right. So, you know, I mean, I've had my bosses sort of saying, you know, when they've said, oh, what are you doing with that front cover story? And I've gone, and they've looked at me and gone, it's a bit boring, isn't it? I'm like, no, well, it might be to you, but not to our readers. You know, they're not interested in gimmickry. Um, you know, they, they want, they're into the music. It's, so if you start with that as your base, that's what we've always sort of done. It's, you know, it's mostly about the music. Um, you know, they're more interested in how that was put together than what the band were doing after their recording session, for example, you know. Yeah, and that, that's a really interesting way. Like when you say setting the tone, it's like the tone is we're interested in the music, which I know sounds so obvious, but it but isn't. We're for fans. Magazines, we are it? fans yeah. just like you. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I, you know, I've, I've, I've heard every accusation about me that, you know, is wholly untrue. Mm-hmm. Um over the over the years because that's just the way things are you know it's like yeah. no you know oh he doesn't care he's only getting paid for this it's like well actually you know i'm, I'm doing this because it goes right back mm. to what got me into music in the first place yeah. you know um so yeah it's understanding you know i mean we all remember the nme and the melody maker being and they did it brilliantly you know but it's ridiculing everything apart from yeah. what they wanted to wanted people to listen to um yeah. And that's great for – I don't think that market really exists anymore and, and, and that's certainly not an approach that yeah. we we just, we decided we weren't going to, you know, win. I've been thinking how, in a weird way, that's kind of what the alt-right and, like, GB News and things do now. Like, the bulk of what they do is grievance and criticising other yeah. stuff that happens in the world and it's almost like that 21-year-olds kind of just like joking about Kylie albums has now become yeah. criticising your political opponents. But anyway, it's a whole sub-thread sub of my thinking of whereabouts we are in culture. Yeah. Um, so would you say that you... Because the, the one thing I found really interesting when I first read Prog, um, and I'm not a regular reader, um, but I've definitely read a few issues, especially as you've written lovely things about artists I've worked with, like the Anchoress. <laughs> Um, but when I've picked it up, I've been really surprised what does fit within the prog world. So like 65 Days of Static had an amazing feature that I read one issue I picked up. And they're a band which 
I was like, oh yeah, of course they're a prog band. <laughs> and then you had like a piece on Hannah, Hannah Peel and a piece on um, Jane Weaver and yep. Anna von Hauswolf and all those kind of artists yep. that I really loved. And I hadn't, like obviously Muse and Kate Bush are sort of two of my favourite acts and they both are quite clearly prog acts. Yep. And then like things like Mastodon and things like that where I hadn't really thought about them being prog. So I'd be curious if you even yeah. have, like, boundary lines of what, yeah, what is and isn't in the magazine. We do. I mean, you know, some of our, our reader critics would probably argue that we don't, but we do. Mm. Um, where we started out, we, we look, look, you can either go, let's just write about the classic 70s bands, which obviously we, there's a big portion of our readership, would, that's just what they'd love us to do. Yeah. And I'm like, well, magazine's not going to survive very long if it does that. But mm. also I'm hearing progressive music i mean prog didn't just die in 1978 or 9 it carried on you know it had the new wave of british or the new prog revival in the 80s and then mm. you know in the 90s it was kind of a fallower period but prog metal started to become a thing mm. um and and that kind of helped interest in the internet when the internet came along, Prog kind of used it very well. News groups, it became a cottage industry in a way. Um, mm. You only have to look at the way bands like Pendragon and IQ adapted very, very quickly to putting their own records out, doing it themselves through their own websites. Um, you know, obviously on the back of that, Marillion did the crowdfunding thing with Anarachnophobia, which mm. has become a, a recognised model now. You know, with yeah, which radio, I think Radiohead took quite a lot of inspiration yeah, from. You know, but you know, if you if you look back, it was you know it was the nineties and it was Marillion that did that to start with. Um, you know, and they'd probably seen you know bands that they were around with in the eighties. Well, look, they you know because Marillion do it all themselves now. They've got their own label and their own studio complex, and it's you know obviously in today's music business, that's much probably a healthier way to go. Yeah, but. Um, we took the view that, you know, progressive music, its its reach was was quite wide. You could hear prog influence in Radiohead and Muse, like you said, mm-hmm. at one end, um, you know, where it's branching into the mainstream. At the other end, you've got bands like Sugar, who are incredibly heavy, but inspired by Marillion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you probably can't hear that, but they'll tell you that that's, yeah. you know. Um, and we, it was like, well, I think, to, to get any kind of longevity going here, we've got to accept that prog is a, a broad a broad church, yeah. and then just go right. We're going to write about all of it. Mm. You know, we write about progressively inclined music. The title might be prog. I mean, it, that really happened. I mean, and some people see that as just being a specific part of of progressive music. We just see it as an abbreviation of progressive. You know, I mean, I remember sitting there with with Scott Rowley on day one at Future, and he was going, "Well, what are we going to call this magazine then?" And um, I'm like, "Yeah, you, everything was flown a prognosis and all these sort of things." And he was just like, well, "It's a bit tacky, isn't it?" And it's like, I remember Classic Rock. We were going to call Classic Rock Rock Circus, inspired by the US magazine Circus. And I remember just towards the end of the whole research and development process, or actually as we were about to go to press. Um, the publisher going, I'm, I'm, I'm still not taken by the name. And, of course, we're all in a meme. I'm getting a bit huffy. And we go, what do you mean? It's a great name. You know, and she goes, well, it doesn't say anything to me. And I thought, well, she, you know, if you're a, a, a sort of, if you like that sort of music and that's not. And she said, she said, we said well, what did she suggest? She goes, well, what's the magazine about? We said, well, Classic Rock. She goes, well, why don't you call it Classic Rock? Mm. And everyone went, well, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> Because you know, I like how both I like how both of the titles are like sections of a record shop. Well, yeah, because they're niche. You know, I mean, what we are, we considered niche niche publishing now, and that's how mm. that's why these magazines still work because yeah. they recognise their their little niche, and that's where they they pitch it to. You know, we don't put Kate Bush on the cover in the hope that somebody that likes Kate's poppier stuff might pick the magazine up. We do it because we know that we've got diehard fans that yeah. want in depth on, on Kate. A lot of the artists so a lot of the artists though that you mentioned, they just fall within that. You can hear I mean, you know, Jay Weaver is not going to deny to anyone that she is influenced by by progressive music. Mm. A lot of them really don't. It's because it's not a dirty word anymore. You know? Yeah. Um you, you record company marketing 
uh, people and, and band managers might be a bit sniffy still, but... You know. I'm sure the Spotify algorithm doesn't necessarily treat it as this is what we should put on New Music Friday. Uh, well, <laughs> but I, mean, I think that's but I think that's an industry thing of uh, it, like because because I because I think it's it's interesting to me that it's in fact like Drannon Sound's name. I thought about it like there was tons of other working titles and I and I say this as I was like 17 and I doing my A levels when I came up with the name, but I really wanted something that captured my emotional connection to music rather than being too specific yeah. and actually in a, in a weird way we failed a little bit in trying to find define who we were because i didn't want to define who we were i liked the fact that we could cover yeah like really thoughtful hip-hop one minute folk music yeah like and we were basically an indie magazine like pretty much that was our core but like like for instance when we started covering paramore then that started to define us because we were one of some of the only people writing about this successful band i'm like yeah but the next thing i wrote about was alluvium who makes like beautiful ambient music and i think that the boundaries and borders of what a magazine is and isn't are always really interesting to me and i think that the i think one of the things that's really clear about what the magazines that have survived and thrive is that they're really clear in who what they are yeah um, well, and then they allow that to expand. I think that's quite it, a it goes cool back, thing. It goes back to what I was telling you, Sean, that, um, you know, you know your readers, mm. but know what you are as well, you know. Be, yeah. be comfortable in your own skin and 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 be comfortable with your readership um, yeah. and then they'll feel comfortable I, with you. I was um, very comfortable having a very melancholic name to this point. <laughs> well, it was emo and it was well, sad. Of course. <laughs> you know, these things work at, you know, yeah. At, at different times. So, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously you've got gatekeepers in any genre and, and, and you know, we, we have we have readers that don't like the fact that, that we, we don't just write about Yes from 1973, and I get that. Yeah. But progressive music isn't just what was recorded, you know. Mm. My big argument about what prog is is, you know, people go, oh, it's just Yes and Genesis and Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And I'm like, okay, well, you listen to those bands because Yes didn't sound anything like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and they mm. didn't sound anything like Jethro Tull and they didn't sound anything like King Crimson who sounded absolutely nothing, you know, like the Moody Blues, um, you know, who sounded nothing like Pink Floyd. I mean, there were certain sort of sonic trap, but those bands didn't actually sound anything at all like each other. So how can you say, well, that's progressive rock? Because if they all sound unique to them, there's yeah. surely there is, you know, the, it's the ideas that they're coming um, up with. It's and do you the think way, the ongoing com- it's the Sorry, way was- they approach making their music that sets yeah. them apart. You know, it's this refusal to pander to orthodox song structures, to take in influences that you're told aren't going to work with each other. And make it work. That's progressive, right? It's not a sound because if it was a sound, yes, would sound like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and they don't. So, and you apply that to, you know, the modern day, and then there's all sorts of stuff. You know, Mars Volta, Coheed and Cambria, Mastodon. You know, you said you wouldn't have thought of Mastodon. Well, they're very heavy, but all their albums were concept albums, and they ended up. You know, by the time Prog Magazine came out. You know, Crack Sky was like the the proggiest thing you could listen to, you know, in 2009. I at, at the end of the first year of Prog Magazine, I had the BBC on the phone going, can you explain to us why Muse are at number one and this band called Porcupine Tree are in the top 30? <laughs> you know, and... Um, and, the, and the title of the magazine, is it Prog Full Stop? Yeah, it's just Prog. Or, um, and... Because in in a way it feels like a kind of question that's like keeps going. Because like what it is quite nice that it's a genre that in even the conversation about on, what the genre is and isn't allows the magazine to have like it different. Keep, it, keep, it keeps on reinventing itself. But if you're looking at a base of music that could you know even in the seventies that that you know was yes, you know with all their spiritual stuff that they had going on. Emerson, Lake and Palmer's bombastic classic rock, classical rock music fusion, but also Kraftwerk and Can and Noi, you know, and, and then you had like Fairport Convention and Pentangle and, and even Steel Eye Span to an example, who were rooted in folk but took that beyond that. They were telling stories and doing concept albums and they were taking stuff. So prog fans like that. 
right? So they go, well, that's a bit proggy. You know, that works. That fits in, you know. Um, it's this is huge sort of melt, melting pot of, of, of music, you know. And the influence, you know, yeah, Steve Illich was playing a, a Reading Festival in 1978 with Sham 69, mm. you know. I mean, you know, and then we have a, a feature in, in the magazine called uh, My Prog Hero, and the, 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 which where a musician that you wouldn't think is aligned with progressive music talks about somebody that they're a massive fan of. And those early issues were just full up with all the old punks of Jean-Jacques yeah. Bonnell talking about his love of Caravan, of, 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 of Captain Sensible, who's a massive prog head, you know, of, of Woody from Madness being a huge Steve Illich fan, um, you know. And then you've got, you know, I was uh, I was at a Dolby Atmos playback of the last Tears for Fears album, which Stephen Wilson had done, and Roland Orzabel pipes up. I suppose I feel where we, we're at with our career now, the, 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 the music I think we're most likely aligned to is progressive rock. <laughs> you know, uh, it's influence. It's, you know, we, have, we have a T-shirt that says, um, you know, um, how is it? Um, uh, we are prog, resistance is futile. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it's, and you continue to hear the, the influence. This is. I've always been fascinated by progressive music um, because it, it's interesting, and and I love the fact that bands keep on warping it and doing something. You can hear, you can hear that influence, but they're doing something quite sonically different. You know, it's always a, it's always an interesting journey that you're on with with, with yeah. progressive music. So I've only got a couple more questions for you, and I'm very um, thankful for your time. That's fine. It's um, been a pleasure. Sean. I've 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 got a theory that magazines are going to have a vinyl moment. Like vinyl was cast away as being something of the past. I hope you're right. And, and, and magazines, magazines to me are something which, like for instance, when MySpace came around, people thought Drown and Sound was going to close. When YouTube came around, people thought Drown and Sound would close. And I've and I've heard these this kind of on and on and on the, the idea, but. I think one of the reasons magazines started to falter at one point is because they tried to compete with the internet rather than trying to make great magazines. Yeah. And I think there's something in well, a well, lot of I mean, what no you've one... just been talking about, about make, knowing who your readers are, making something for them. And prog fans, they like collecting physical products. Yes. They like the artwork. They like like everything about what you do as a magazine, to me, points at the people that were still buying vinyl when they, they like heft, by heft, vinyl. hefty 14, 15, 16-page features on their artists. Yeah. You know, they don't want throwaway bite-sized sound bites. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we'll just look at the way that the music industry failed to comprehend the internet. Mm. Um, you know, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, and I think that it's something that uh, I know, given that I've been involved with, with prog and classic rock and metal hammer for so long, that we've worked there as a group of magazines, have worked incredibly hard at trying to get that perfect sort of, unison of of getting it right in print but getting that right online as well mm. and also how you deal with that as you present yourself to the public obviously through social media you've got to you know all, all these things i think that's a really interesting point i mean i'd love it if if, if we did have a vinyl moment um mm. you know because it's not easy out there um yeah. And I could probably have earned a lot more money if I'd have gone into marketing, um, but mm. I wouldn't be half as happy as I am. Probably no, I have the career satisfaction that I've been very fortunate to have. I can't imagine you talking to your 16-year-old self, stapling your first fanzine together, saying, this is what you ended up doing. <laughs> this this is going to be... this. It's quite a lovely arc but I, yeah, I don't know there's something that something in the physicality of what a magazine I probably is. said yeah, i'll take that but lose the bid <laughs> <laughs> um there's something in the physicality of a magazine that i think as an experience we're finding scrolling online is not as satisfying and I, I to, buy, to kind of value and own something i feel is quite crucial i mean i i find i do read stuff on on online but that I, I find it. I, I still want to pick up a book. I still want to read a magazine. I still want to thumb through a newspaper. Um, you know, um, it's but obviously the internet has changed the way that we have to deal with things. You know, there was a time where if something happened, you know, you could write about it and it would go into print three weeks later and it would be like exciting news. Um, 
perfect example of that is that you know Mike Portnoy rejoined has rejoined Dream Theater. The news broke yesterday afternoon. I had a chat with my news editor this morning. Are we going to do anything? It's going to be old news by the time um, the mag goes it goes on sale. Even though it's it's a big story, and I'm like, no, unless you know, unless we can get something unique, which which case we'll do something different in that issue. Yeah. Um, it's something you know that that that's just perfect example of how how your life has changed, having to deal with the way, well, you know, adapting to what is around you. Basically, it's like you know, bang, that's out on the internet, that's massive news. A byproduct of that would be there'll be a much bigger story and maybe a cover story in the print magazine further down the line, but we probably won't even mention it in the news section of the next issue. Mm. The, one of my other theories is that great magazines or great publications are closer probably to cartography than they are to kind of like fiction writing and cartography, the art of making a map, and that sometimes, uh, in my mind, the magazines that I really loved have given me entire new worlds to walk into and have guided me towards things which I maybe wouldn't. And I think I, what I really love about a magazine is you can dedicate space to something. And I think it's the physicality of we decided here's four pages on something. I I totally agree with you. And I mean, I'm very fortunate that, you know, the, the, the the area of music that we, we specialize in is, is, probably you know dead diehards someone once said to me he goes you know probably classic rock and prog magazine will be the last two print magazines standing because their readers still want want that sort of thing i you know if you go back to when i i was working on maxim online uh, you know i used to get people going to me well this is the death of print isn't it you know and i'd be like well no no you know not until and that was that was over that was 20 years ago and they still haven't come up with a decent page turning alternative online you know and i think until that happens there's always going to be in certain areas there's going to be room for people wanting to read something in in paper um you know we're lucky that we have dedicated fan bases of music that are passionate about that and therefore i'm particularly lucky that you know prog is probably the the only i mean there are there are mag- there are foreign language magazines that cover prog, but I guess in 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 the English speaking world, it, it's you know prog magazine. So we're lucky that we kind of that figurehead for them. Um, yeah. So last question, um, as I asked you the music journalism one at the start, I'm just generally curious where you think um, the future of maybe not just magazines but music publications could go and i and i i'm hoping that you come up with quite a prog ar kind of you hold your phone up and the magazine swirls around you <laughs> well that would be lovely wouldn't it i mean yeah. you know i i like everyone else have seen the rise of ai we always knew it was coming mm. you know um with trepidation and interest you know um and I'm very pleased to say that, that Future's approach is very much you don't use it, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not working properly anyway, but nothing can compensate at the moment for something. You know, I could see a time when we actually have a cover line that says written by humans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, that's something that I keep thinking about. Human-made products will be the new fair trade. Um, you know, and that's going to be more and more challenging Um uh, the biggest challenge, I think, that you know, a- along with the fact that, that you know, magazine sales are decreasing, there's no well, no way around that. that. That's a fact of life. Um, I suspect that that something will arise out of those scenarios that presents a, a new way forward. But I mean, I myself haven't got 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 the idea of of of, of what it would be. Um, mm. But I suspect that, that you know people still want to be entertained, uh, not just through music, but through reading stuff or to have stuff presented to them. Anyway, mm. um, you know the mediums are sort of changing, and of course that's the byproduct of the internet and the world we now live in. I suspect the advent of AI will speed that up. Like I said, the changes I've seen in the last ten years 
are so rapid compared to what happened in the 20 years that preceded those. Mm. Um, and I suspect that, that changes will come much quicker at us. And again, it's all about, it's all about adapting and it's all about yeah. being able to say, right, well, okay, we're going to take what we do, but we're going to move it into this format and this medium mm. and, and present it in, in a different way. Because I think like with AI, one of the things that if you think about it as intelligence, if you consider your back issues as a knowledge and that you could query and prod it and maybe th- like, I don't know, you say the sun's just come out, I'm wearing this T-shirt, what record should I listen to? And it might fish through you, it might find interconnectivities between your music and suddenly pick you something. But I, I don't think that is going to be anywhere near as good as me saying, Jerry, what records should I listen to when this chat finishes? No. And um, you asking because, me a couple of questions about my music taste yeah, because, because, and then telling me what a record to go out. Yeah, um, and I think you're right. Um, so I think that, I mean, I think, you know, at the heart of it, there has to be human connection, otherwise we're just all lost to algorithms, um, which, you know, uh, never get it right, um, you know, at the moment. As as AI is hopelessly, you know, poor, um, but we'll get better, um, you know. Um, but I think at the root, there's another thing, actually, going back to your very first question, actually, what is journalism? It's communication. It's communication between human beings. That is the mic drop. <laughs> the, uh, that's the perfect way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Drowned and Sound podcast with Jerry Ewing, the editor of Prague Magazine. As always, you can find links in the show notes. This series is hosted by Sean Adams. He also produces, researches, and lightly edits each episode. Bye for now. <laughs>